For the next two weeks, we'll get the opportunity to look at the book of Acts together in chapter three. I'm really excited. This is an incredible passage of scripture. This morning, we'll look at verses one through 16. The title of this morning's message is The Meaning of a Miracle. I'd like to begin by reading from God's word, so follow with me as I read from Acts chapter three, verses one through 16. Hear God's word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is God's word. Do miracles happen today? Steven Pinker, a psychologist and researcher at the University of Harvard, has written a number of books recently chronicling what he labels a a general increase in the human condition globally. His thesis is that all data indicates that as we trace human history, we can see that people live longer, healthier lives than they ever have in recorded history. However, he notes there are a few detrimental things holding the human race back. Among these mediating factors that restrain us from achieving the progress we could attain, he lists in his words, adherence to religious fundamentalism. Certainly under the umbrella of religious fundamentalism, he would note belief in miracles. If only we could shed the beliefs inherited from our superstitious ancestors, we could achieve the progress our race is truly capable of. And yet, despite Pinker's skepticism, statistics indicate that the world is not becoming less Christian but more Christian as the Christian faith continues to expand globally. And central to the Christian faith is a miracle, nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, many preachers and teachers, uh, at least so-called Christian preachers and teachers, would say that central to their ministry is the ability to perform miracles in the present day. Uh, What we find is that there are two wildly different ends on the spectrum, aren't there? Clearly, understanding miracles 
is an important aspect of our spiritual life. Do miracles happen today? I think understanding Acts chapter 3 and the miracle recorded here will help us to answer that question. But in order to approach this text, I think we need to ask a prior question. That is this. What is the meaning of the miracle recorded for us in Acts chapter 3? And if we can answer that question adequately, I think it will lead us to the question, do miracles happen today? So what I'd like to do this morning is ask the question, what is the meaning of that miracle? And as we look at Acts chapter 3, we'll find that this scene unfolds in two sections. There is a sign and there is a sermon. And this morning, we will look at the sign and next week we'll go in detail in the sermon. But I think in order to really understand this, we've got to just remember for a moment where this passage comes from and why it's written in the Bible in the first place. You remember that the book of Acts chronicles the establishment and the expansion of the church. The Gospels tell us that Jesus Christ came to earth to accomplish a mission. In Jesus' own words, Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. He came to achieve salvation for God's people and he did that by being crucified for their sins and resurrected from the dead. But in order for the salvation he achieved through his death and resurrection to be applied to his people, his people must hear about the Savior so they can believe on him and be saved. In order to fulfill the mission that Jesus began through his death and resurrection, he initiated a new thing called the church that would fulfill the mission by extending the word about Christ to the ends of the earth so that God's people could hear of their Savior and believe on him. And he began establishing this new institution called the church by founding it on the ministry of people called the prophets and apostles. And the book of Acts records the beginning of that ministry. In Acts chapter one, he commissions a group of men called the apostles to be his eyewitnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In chapter two, he gives them the Holy Spirit who empowers them to bear witness to what they have seen in Jesus' life and crucifixion and resurrection. And at the end of chapter two, it says that thousands are converted and join this new institution called the church. Acts chapter three is the next installment, the next major chapter in the founding of this institution we know as the church. First, there is a miracle that makes a way for the word to be preached about Christ. And at the conclusion of this section in Luke's book, in Acts chapter four and verse four, we read that many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. In other words, chapter three of Luke's story is the next phase in the establishment and building of God's church to fulfill the mission Jesus began of sending the message of his salvation to the ends of the earth. And as I said, chapter three unfolds in two scenes. First, there is a sign, and then there is a sermon. And we would like to ask this morning, what is the meaning of the sign? So let's begin to do that. The first thing that we would need to do is see the setting of the sign, and that comes to us in verses one through three. So let's read again verses one through three, and then we'll make a couple observations. Notice in your Bibles, look down at verse one, we read this, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those who enter the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Let's make a couple observations. We notice that in verse two, it says that this man was lame from birth and he's being carried. In other words, this is a man who doesn't just have an injury, he has a deformity. And if we continue to read, we come to Acts chapter four and verse 22, and we find that this man is over 40 years old. So from birth to now, 
in the ancient day, a little bit more than middle age, this man has been deformed. He is entirely incapacitated. His legs are probably in a state of obvious disarray. This is a man who is a social outcast, who has no means of providing for himself, who has no hope of recovery. There's no cure available. It's a man in a desperate situation. That's the scene, the platform upon which God will do a miracle. And we move into the miracle in chapters four through eight. We wanna talk about that for a moment, but first let's reread the verses and then we'll make a couple more observations. Notice verse four in the text says, and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up immediately. His feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I want you to notice a couple things about this miracle. First is that verse 7 says it happens immediately. In other words, there's no interval, an opportunity for Peter to pull some kind of chicanery. Oftentimes in the modern day, so-called miracle workers will operate something like this. Give you a miracle rub, tell you to rub it on the injured area for 40 days with prayer and fasting, and if you have enough faith, you can expect a miracle. That's not Peter's MO. Peter says a word and immediately there is a divine intervention and we find an immediate supernatural miracle that happens, notice secondly, yielding complete healing. Verse eight says the healing results in complete healing because we see in verse eight that he rises up and is leaping and walking and praising God. Instantaneously, this man who has this deformity in his legs and his feet and his ankles, upon this word from Peter, new flesh begins to grow. New new bone spontaneously out of nowhere grows. Ligaments are instantaneously strengthened. This is a creation ex nihilo, mirroring the creation of the world. This is an immediate, obvious, undeniable display of God's supernatural creative power. I think just for a moment as we're on this, we might just park the car for a moment and just talk, what do we mean when we talk about a miracle? Because we use that kind of language loosely in our daily conversation, don't we? I'm a father of three young children. My oldest is three years old and she recently began to use the toilet all on her own and it's a miracle. (laughs) Yet that's not the kind of miracle that Peter and John were in the business of. What is a miracle? Sometimes we say that a miracle is when God intervenes to break the laws of nature and reveal his creative power. I think that's a helpful definition and yet I think it could be improved upon a bit. I agree with the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great English preacher, who said that in a miracle, God does not break the laws of nature but acts above them. He acts above them. That, that is, God has established his creative world in such a way that it operates by regular principles, regular, we could call them laws, that we can observe and we could describe and then we can use to fulfill the creation mandate of creating and expanding, ruling and stewarding God's creative world that he gave to us in Genesis chapter one. But just as God created the world, he can also act above it. 
See, God created the world with regular means, and he ordinarily operates in the world through his good providence that he has established in these things we call natural laws. So we ought to immediately recognize that it's always God working in the normal, everyday things of life. So take healing for an example. God usually heals people through ordinary means that he's established in his creative order. We call them doctors and medicine. So you get sick, take some medicine, go to a doctor, you get a prescription, you take the medicine, uh, some kind of surgery or whatever. You're healed through the means that we can describe through the scientific method. You're healed through normal, natural means. And yet, because we know there is a sovereign God who ordered this creation, you can trace that healing back to the hand of a loving Father and you can bless the God who healed you. God has created the natural world with order, with laws, with regulative principles, tools by which he normally works in the world. But just as you can create a tool and use it to achieve your ends, you can also bypass the tool and do that task directly. That's what God is doing when he does a miracle. He supersedes the tool and he intervenes in his creative order to accomplish some end. Let me perhaps limp towards an illustration of this. Perhaps some of you have in your freezer right now when you go home, don't think about it too hard right now. You might have a carton of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ben and Jerry's, as you know, has, uh, it comes in all shapes and sizes. One of the sizes it comes in is this kind of in-between size that shouldn't be a single serve, but you could make it a single serve. <laughs> the normal means by which you would eat the ice cream is that you would use a tool. You would use an ordinary means, we call a bowl. Scoop the ice cream into the bowl, and then you would eat it. And yet, you can also bypass the normal means. You could take that spoon, you could stick it straight into that carton and through an incredible move, maybe you could call Fat King Arthur, you can just in one scoop, just pull it out of the stone and you can eat the ice cream just like that. Miracle! You can bypass the tool and get straight to the good stuff. When God is working in the world, he's ordinarily using the means he's established in the created order so that when you are healed, it is God who's doing the healing. And yet, God has the ability upon his own prerogative to supersede his ordinary means and intervene in his creation, performing a miracle to reveal his creative power. That's what's happening in Acts chapter three. He's intervening in the creation to reveal his creative power and his compassion upon people in their broken, sinful condition. Well, I think we've talked a bit about miracles. Now we can begin to ask some, answer some questions about the meaning of this miracle. We'll begin to see the meaning of the miracle if we look at verse eight, and we see that the result of the miracle this man received is that he worships God. So notice, go down to verse nine. The result of the miracle is that after receiving the healing, the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him, rather, go to verse eight. We'll, we need to see this verse eight and nine in parallel. Verse eight says, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Then verse nine, the people saw him walking and praising God. You know what the repetition in those two verses? It's meant to draw your attention to the action. You're supposed to have your eyes pause on the way this man responded to the healing he received. And if you know something about the culture in which this man lived, you would know that this is a controversial act. We know from ancient writings that both the Greco-Roman world and the Judean 
Jewish Near Eastern culture regarded jumping and leaping as a very undignified, unmanly thing to do. Dignified, respectable men don't act like this. If you could just think about some of the Bible stories that you've read, if you recall, as the Ark of the Covenant approaches the city of Jerusalem, David danced before the Ark and all of his peers looked upon him as though he were shaming himself because dignified men don't do that. Then remember the, the, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. His father, upon having his son leave and then return, runs to his son. And that father, who's supposed to signify God, scandalizes the Orthodox Pharisees listening to the parable because dignified men don't do that. This man, who has been a social outcast for all of his life, a pariah, he's never been well thought of in his entire life, finally has an opportunity to stand on his own two feet and stick out his chest and walk with a dignified gait and demand a little bit of respectability from his peers, throws caution to the wind, bucks all of the social expectations because all he can do is worship God. He's walking and leaping and praising the God who saved him. It's a man who fits better in God's kingdom than in Caesar's. It makes me wonder, if God has saved us, then could the same be said of us? We'll get back to that in a moment. Let's move on and let's ask some questions about the meaning of this parable. We really begin to hone in on that as we come to see the way that the people responded to his actions. So notice in verses 9 through 11, look down at your Bibles at verse 9. The people saw him walking and leaping and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. Notice this language. There's another repetition. They're gripped with awe and wonder. And the particular words that are used are strong words. As they see this miracle has taken place, they're astounded. They're in awe. The language conveys a sense of confusion, even terror. It leaves them with this sense of awestruck confusion. And they don't know what to make of it. And so they run to Peter and John to ask him, what do we do with this? Explain to us what just happened. In other words, what we see from this text is that the miracle was not an end in itself. Peter and John's work was not meant to terminate upon the healing. The miracle opened a door for the word. It opened a door for the proclamation of the word about Christ. We're gonna turn to the sermon and ask Peter from his own lips, to explain the meaning of the miracle, but I wonder if maybe even before that we could recall something from the Gospels and ask, is there a pattern that mirrors this in the Gospels? And in fact, I think there definitely is a pattern in the Gospels we can observe that indicates to us the meaning of the miracles that Christ did. For example, we could just walk through the four Gospels. You begin with the Gospel of Matthew. The first time Matthew begins to record Jesus doing miracles is in chapter four. It says he's healing people and casting out demons. Large crowds are gathering, and as the large crowds gather, Jesus goes up on a mountain, and chapters five through seven, he preaches this magisterial sermon we know as the Sermon on the Mount, where the Messiah tells us how to enter his kingdom and live as kingdom citizens. In other words, the miracles opened a door for the word and validated the words Jesus was teaching. 
You come to the Gospel of Mark, and in Mark chapter one, the first healing that is, that is recorded is Jesus' teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum, and there's a man with a demon, and Jesus heals him, and Mark records the response to the people is to marvel at the authority of this teaching. Then the next miracle that Mark records is in chapter two. He heals a lame man very similarly to what Peter does in Acts chapter three, and Jesus gives us an explicit purpose statement for that miracle. He says, I'm going to do this so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. The miracles verify his word. They're to get you to believe in his word. Luke chapter four is the first time Luke's gospel records a miracle, and it is a, is a harmonious account with Mark chapter one where Jesus heals a demoniac while he's teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum, but there's a small difference in this text where as Luke is recording the response of the people, he goes on and adds that the people say, what is this word? And of course, Mark, excuse me, John rather, records a number of miracles of Jesus. The first one he records is the famous event in John chapter two where Jesus and Cana turns water into wine. At the conclusion of that little account, John writes that Jesus performed this miracle at Cana and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus was performing miracles to validate the message that he's the Messiah come to achieve salvation for God's people. Jesus, as we said at the beginning, told us he came to earth for a mission, to achieve salvation to give his life as a ransom for many. He achieved salvation through his crucifixion and resurrection, but now the message has to get to the ends of the earth so his people can hear the message and believe in their savior. And the way he's going to accomplish that is by establishing an institution called the church. And he will found this institution on prophets and apostles who will then found a church that will grow up so that the church can take the word to the ends of the earth. Well, how will he validate these eyewitnesses at least claim to be eyewitnesses so that the word can begin to get out. A good way to validate the eyewitness testimony of his apostles would be to enable them to do the very same miracles he did. Peter says that's the meaning of this miracle. Let's turn now to the sermon. And what we'll, we'll do is I want to just do a quick overview of what Peter's doing in this sermon and Next week we'll go into more detail, but this morning we'll focus in on what Peter says is the meaning of the miracle he just performed. So let's turn to the sermon. Begin with me, let's look at verse 12. Notice verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, everyone's running to him, and Peter has an opportunity to proclaim the word. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? We just stop right there and... Just notice, the very first thing Peter says is that this is not about me. This is not to make you marvel at me. This is about a message about a Messiah to whom you must believe. And I wonder, maybe just as a footnote, could the same be said about our ministries? In the way that you serve, in the way that you give, in the way that you teach, in the way that you minister in the church, people walk away from your ministry filled with Great thoughts of a great servant, great thoughts of a great savior. Can it be said of us like John the Baptist that Christ is increasing and we're decreasing? That characterized the apostles' ministry. Peter continues his message in verse 13. Notice verse 13, 
He turns to the point that he wants to communicate and says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. He says, we have a message that we want to proclaim, that God has sent his Messiah He has fulfilled all that the prophets prophesied about him. You crucified him, but he died not for his sins, for yours. And now God has validated his ministry by resurrecting him from the dead. And he continues his message in verse 17. Notice verse 17, Peter turns and says, Now, brothers, now he's going to call for a response. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Therefore, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This Messiah, who you didn't recognize and crucified, God resurrected and is now offering you salvation. He achieved it by dying for your sins, and He's offering it through His resurrection. You must believe in this Messiah. There is no other Savior. But if you believe in this Christ, your sins will be blotted out. They have a message to tell about a crucified and resurrected Messiah. So why the miracle? The miracle because the miracle validates the message. What absurdity. What absolute crazy absurdity to say that a carpenter from Nazareth was crucified, is resurrected, and is the fulfillment of all of God's prophetic plans. But what they're doing is the exact same miracles that Jesus did, validating that their word is true. You notice this in verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We saw him with our own eyes, resurrected from the dead. He is the Messiah. He is the only Savior. You must believe in him. And this is evidence that what we're telling you is true. Jesus came on a mission to accomplish salvation for his people. He achieves it by being crucified, rising from the dead. He's going to take that message to the ends of the world so his people can hear the message and believe on the Savior. He's going to do that through an institution called the church. But he's going to found the church through the ministry of the apostles, the eyewitnesses. And the way he's going to validate them is through miracle working power. That's what's happening here. This is what we see through the rest of the New Testament, that God is going to fulfill the ministry Jesus began of taking his salvation to the ends of the earth through the church and he would found that church on the apostles. Paul says as much in Ephesians in chapter 2 writing to the church in Ephesus he says so you're no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church. The church is the household of God. In verse 20 he says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The eyewitness testimony, the revelation given, the explanation of the crucifixion and resurrection given by the eyewitness apostles is the foundation of the church. And you don't rebuild a foundation. The apostles have a message to get out that needs to get to the end of the earth. But the way that God is going to initiate that program is by validating these eyewitnesses through the same miracle working power that the Messiah himself demonstrated so that the word can get out. 
Paul says this as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of true apostles were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty works. The signs validated the message. Miracles authenticated the messengers to get the message out. You see this in Acts chapter 3. The miracle is to open a door for the message. The climax is not the healing of ankles. The climax is the proclamation of Christ. The miracles validated the messenger so the word could get out, but do you know what? It worked. The apostolic word got out, and it's in your lap. So God does not need to continue to supply his church with wonder-working apostles because the wonders were always intended to get to the Word. And now the Word is here. The foundation has been laid through the wonder-working apostles and their eyewitness testimony and now their Word has come to us who have received it and have been built into this household of God and now we're entrusted with the next chapter of the expansion of the church taking that Word to the ends of the earth so the rest of God's people can hear of Christ and believe on Him. But we don't need wonder workers because God is working wonders through His Word. Through the Word of God, the Spirit speaks and opens the eyes of the blind to behold the glory of Christ and believe on Him. The Word does not need external confirmation. It's self-authenticating when the Spirit speaks through the Word and awakens the hearts of the people who hear it. This is what we are as a church. This is what we're here to do, is to take the Word to the ends of the earth to finish the mission Jesus began through his crucifixion and resurrection. So crucial that we understand the meaning of this miracle for a whole slew of reasons, but perhaps maybe I'll just list a couple here. One of the reasons that we need to recognize the meaning of this miracle is so that we don't neglect what God is revealing today. So we don't neglect what God is revealing today. Here's what I mean. In spite of Steven Pinker's skepticism, Statistics tell us Christianity continues to expand globally, and yet many professing Christians find themselves in a position where they're continuing to chase new revelation, new miracles. Failing to recognize that the apostolic miracles were all along intended to point us to the Word, and the Word is now here. We don't need wonder-working miracles. We need the Word. And that at first can sound kind of pessimistic. Is God like abandoned us? He's not doing these supernatural miracles? Is, does our Christian experience rise no higher than just reading a book? Just read a book. That's it. I'm a Christian. So the question I asked at the beginning of our morning was, does God do miracles today? And if you asked me that question, I would give you an emphatic yes. Because what a miracle is, is God superseding his normal established means in the pro- in his providential order to do a work. Can God still do that? Absolutely. At his own prerogative, God can do that. God ordinarily eats his ice cream with a bowl. He usually uses the normal established means to heal us, to save us, to accomplish his work in the world. But if God wants to King Arthur just get straight to the good stuff, he can do that. But he doesn't give us miracle workers anymore because the miracle workers were given to get the word out and the word has gotten out and now we have it. And rather than feeling like God is neglecting us because he's not giving us apostles anymore, I think we ought to 
flip that thought on its head and recognize that God has such a high esteem for his word, he renders it unnecessary to give us miracle workers. Because what is the function of the apostolic word, of the Bible, of the New Testament? What is this word supposed to do? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, God gave us this word to reveal Christ. And there can be nothing higher than that. To illustrate that, maybe let me ask you a question. Who would you say is the happiest being in the universe? As I mentioned, I've got three kids. The oldest name is Zoe. She's three years old, and sometimes I am quite tempted to say she's the happiest being in the universe. Her name means life, and she loves life. And yet, we know theologically, the happiest being in the universe is God. God's not a cosmic killjoy. God has been infinitely happy for all of eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, he has been entirely satisfied, full of joy. God is an infinite being. Being an infinite being, he would need something pretty big to keep him satisfied for all of eternity. Because we know that the more mature and the more you grow, the larger your affections grow, you need bigger objects to satisfy you, right? The same three-year-old, just not very long ago, was only, from the time she was about six to nine months old, um, we had a surefire way to satisfy her when we wanted to go out to dinner and keep her happy. So we'd walk into a restaurant. As we walk in, I would ask the waiter, give me a stack of plastic cups. He would look at me like, that's weird, but okay. He'd give me some plastic cups. We'd sit down in our booth, and I would hand my daughter a plastic cup, and she'd grab it and just with incredible giddiness, she'd just play with this plastic cup indefinitely. I'd be entirely satisfied with a plastic cup. You know what? It didn't take very long for her to grow out of that. And she may only be three, but if we sit down in a booth and I try to hand her a plastic cup when she's getting a little fidgety, she already knows how to roll her eyes at me. <laughs> and can you imagine when she's 16? Because the more we grow, we need bigger objects to satisfy our affections. God is an infinite being. What is big enough? What is glorious enough? What is incredible enough to satisfy the infinite God for all of eternity? Christ, Christ, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature for eternity. The Father has been infinitely satisfied relishing the glory of his Son. And on the pages of scripture, he unveils him to us. He wants us to relish the same glory he has been satisfied in for all of eternity. That's why he gave us the word. That's why he verified the apostolic word so it could get out and come to us so he could reveal the glory of his son. It's what the word is for. Rather than supposing that God has abandoned us and is no longer giving new revelations, we ought to recognize God is continually, every single day, unveiling the greatest revelation he could possibly give us. The apostolic world is unveiling the panorama of the glories of his son. There's nothing higher he can give us. The only thing that could possibly keep us from it is our own out-of-whack priorities or sinful desires because God is 
every day revealing His Son. Don't neglect what God is revealing today. Secondly, I think we need to understand the nature of this miracle so that we not just neglect what God is revealing today, but also so we don't undervalue the miracle that God is doing every day. So I think we have a tendency as we read a text like Acts chapter three, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Bam, miracle. And we think, that is in- that's incredible. Wouldn't it be awesome to be back there? I mean, if I could just go back to the time of the apostles, then really my spiritual life would be supercharged. Maybe if today God were giving us wonder-working apostles, you know, if we could pull Steve Hawley up on the stage, he could take off his blazer and we'd bring the paralytics and he'd throw the blazer and new ankles would just spring out of nowhere and limbs would grow and it'd be incredible. That would supercharge my faith. If only God were really still in touch with us, still intimately connected with us, doing miracles in our midst the way he was with the apostles, then my faith would be really revitalized. And yet, natural as that is, as soon as we think that way, we're thinking totally askew. Undervaluing the greatest miracle that God does and is continuing to do every day in our midst. See, according to Acts chapter three, this miracle in the temple was intended to get to a better miracle in the heart. The miracle didn't end with the ankles. It ends in chapter four, verse four, with many hearing the word and believing. Luke says God's going from the lesser to the greater. He's going from healing the body to healing the soul. Because that's what conversion is. The pages of the New Testament tell us that conversion is nothing less than a supernatural miracle. Paul says in Ephesians in chapter two, that though you were dead in your transgressions and sin, God made you alive in Christ Jesus. He resurrected you from the dead. In 2 Corinthians in chapter four, he says conversion is when he rips off the veil. You go from blindness to sight and you see the glory of Christ and you believe in him. Peter says in 2 Peter in chapter one that when he converts a person, God imparts to him the divine nature. We become partakers of the divine nature. Recreating human ankles is amazing, but making a human soul a partaker of the divine nature, far more so. Paul says in conversion, we are united to Jesus Christ so that we're joined to him in his crucifixion and united with him in resurrection life. Conversion is the greatest miracle that God does. It was the meaning of the miracle of the apostles was to get the word out so that through the word he could continue to do this miracle even today. And if you are a Christian, this is what has happened to you. You did not become a Christian because of your superior powers of reasoning or your incredible piety. You became a Christian because the living God spoke through his word and said, rise and walk. He did a miracle in you. He gave you life. That's what conversion is. Does God do miracles today? God can, upon prayer, he can grant healing. God can do what God would like to do. But the greatest thing that God does is he imparts spiritual life. That is nothing less than the apex of his miraculous power. We live in a world in which we're told all the time Uh, You are who you are, and you can't change who you are, so you might as well embrace it and celebrate it. I'm sure the the lame man outside the temple heard a similar thing every day of his life. And yet this text says 
that there is a living God who can speak through his apostolic word to the heart of a dead person and say, rise and walk. God can impart spiritual life and radically change the very nature of a human heart. That's what conversion is. You know, believer, if you have experienced this, this miracle, if you've been given spiritual life, do you know the reason that God gave it to you is so that leaping up you can stand and walk and leap and praising God. So that you can live a transformed life, a life that Paul describes in Romans chapter 14 is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That redeemed life is the proof that God is indeed still doing miracles today. And as people see that, they want to hear what is the meaning of this. Jesus came to this earth to achieve a mission to accomplish salvation for his people and he did that through being crucified and rising from the dead. But he wants that word to get to the ends of the earth and he's gonna do that through the church. He established the church through the work of the prophets and apostles and now their word has reached to the ends of the world and everyone who hears it and believes receives this divine miracle we call conversion. is brought into the household of God so we can rise up and walk and praise God and be part of what God is doing in the church, fulfilling the mission Jesus came to get his salvation to the ends of the earth. Father, we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to belong to you because you've given us the supernatural miracle that you call conversion. So, oh God, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts more to behold Christ and to love him. Lord, we ask that you would give us power so that we would fulfill the mission and ministry that you have given us to live transformed lives, spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.